interesting piece in the Atlantic noted that the library director at Yale University had seen a 60% decline in the checking out of books from their catalog. It seems that there is a shift afoot in how libraries are being used. Alan Jacobs, who is a professor in the Honors College at Baylor University, said this in a recent newsletter. He said, fewer people, faculty as well as students, are checking out books from university libraries. And as the article in The Atlantic pointed out, Alan says, what's happening here is much more complicated than an imagined zero-sum game between the defenders of books and library futurists. The decline in the use of print books at universities relates to the kinds of books we read for scholarly pursuits rather than pure pleasure. The rise of e-books and digital articles and the changing environment of research and it runs contrary to the experience of public libraries and bookstores where print continues to thrive. And Alan says, Dan concludes with a thought that I endorse. As beautiful as those libraries appear, and I too find myself unconsciously responding to such surroundings, having grown up studying in them, we should beware, this is where I want you to listen, we should beware of the peril of books as glorified wallpaper. The value of books, after all, is what lies beneath their covers, as lovely as those covers may be. Alan Jacobs goes on to write this. He says, it's understandable that with the rise of e-reading, people will, would wax nostalgic and enthusiastic about what was missing, cover design and binding typography, and even the aroma of a book. But if you pick up a book, admire its cover design and typography, note the well-sewn binding, stick your nose into the pages and inhale deeply, and then reverently replace the book on the shelf, you are rather colossally missing the point of a book. Now, we have noted that all of Scripture is God-breathed, useful for rebuke, like a surgeon's knife. It can divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow. What do you do? with those parts of the Old Testament that you don't understand? Why is it that many Christians would just as soon be content carrying around a pocket New Testament with the Psalms stuck in for good measure? Well, part of it's because it's hard to understand, right? Even as Billy was looking at the, um, the text for this week and getting some work done before she and Ken went over to Ireland with their family, She's like, I have no idea where you're going with this. I'm just going to focus on the ascension of Jesus. I said, that's fine. 
Because it's hard because Paul comes right out with what he's saying, right? Paul comes right out and you have the principle laid right there in the verse. But with something like Micah, you have to read an entire chapter to make sense of what he's saying. And even then you have to understand some of the poetry and the history and the context. But there's much to be said. There's much that's important for us to hear. So the challenge for us this summer, though we would never treat books as wallpaper, we might take um, a good majority of the Old Testament books and treat them like, well, just used up paper between the Psalms and the New Testament. The challenge for us is to, instead of appreciating that there are 66 books in the Bible, get into them and study them and let God speak to us through them. Micah was written uh, by the prophet Micah. Uh, he was a professional prophet. We know that Amos was, um, Amos had another job. He came from a rural town and had another job. Being a prophet wasn't his primary vocation. But Micah, this is his job. This is his life. This is his responsibility to be a prophet. And so he opens and brings the word of God um, to God's people during a time where God's people were being anything but faithful. It sounds like there's almost a pattern going on in the lives of God's people, doesn't there? So Micah chapter 1. We'll stand together. We'll read it together. If I stumble over the words, that's fine. We're all in this together. Stand if you would. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Beth le Afra, roll yourselves in the dust. 
Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The, the inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Azel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Moroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lashish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Aksib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marashah. To the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves bald as the eagle. For they shall go from you into exile. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, no one has loved us the way that you have. No one has pursued us the way that you have. But Father, we are many times a people that live in fear. Fear of your will. Fear of how you'll really answer our prayers. Fear that you don't care about us, see us, or hear us at all. Fear that you've been stringing us along and that the shoe will drop and the jig will be up. Fear that maybe you are the God of wrath after all. But your scriptures say, Perfect love casts out fear. So today, even in this indictment that Micah brings to the people, would we see a God whose heart is love? Would we hear the soft sounds of sandaled feet? And see Jesus, the Ascended One, interceding for us, not because you hate us and he's trying to change your mind, but because you love us and he's our advocate. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Be seated. So amid all of the names of the cities that I struggled to pronounce... And the intimidation of a text like this, what I want us to see today in the words of the prophet and in the verses of God's word is the core contention of Micah, the, the source 
of the, um, of the disarray that has come into the lives of God's people is actually rooted in a deep idolatry. So in our text today, we're going to see three things. We're going to see first the judgment for idolatry, the attachment to idolatry, and finally the rescue from idolatry. Now, a couple things. As I mentioned in the beginning, Paul lays things out propositionally. You know where he's going because you know where he's been, and he's pretty sequential as he's laid out. The difference in studying the Old Testament is that many times the meaning for the text is not found at the verse level, but at the paragraph or even the chapter level. The meaning in the text is found in the meaning of the words, in the way they were put together. So, it's not going to be sequential where I can break it up and easily say verses 1 through 5 account for this part of the outline and verses 6 through 11 account for this part of the outline. We're going to jump around a little bit. So keep your text handy. These sermons get put on the website, so if you want to go back and listen to it, that's great. Or if you want to have a reason to fall asleep, that's also cool. Here's a helpful word from Dr. Stephen Um on the book of Micah. He says this, Micah doesn't give readers any glimpse of restoration early on. It will only come later, and that by way of rebuke. The deliverance of God will come through judgment. Restoration will come through rebuke. The resurrection will come through suffering. That's why it's a message that's hard for any audience to hear. So I promise it's there, but we're going to have to work for it a little bit. First thing I want you to see is that there is a judgment coming. For idolatry. Right as the text opens up, Micah doesn't spend a lot of time introducing himself. He gets right to the point. In this first outline point of the judgment for idolatry, I want to give some context for what we're dealing with. I want to think for just a minute about the judgment of God, and then I want to think for a minute about the type of idolatry that God's people then and now tend to engage in. Okay? So where do I see judgment happening here? Right at verse 3, God is coming down to tread on the high places of the earth. The Lord, Micah says, is going to be a witness against you. Now, this is courtroom language, right? This is that there is a, a summons to a trial. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. The Lord is going to be a witness against you for their sins, now, why does Micah say that there are, uh, the Lord is going to tread on their high places? Verse 7. Well, for starters, in Jerusalem, what was supposed to be in Jerusalem, all of you Old Testament scholars? The temple, right? If there are other things, though, other houses of worship, other high places, did God say, okay, Let's go have bunches of little temples. No, he didn't. So what's happening here? The very fact that there are high places at all means that in Israel's life and history, something has gone very wrong. Something has gone very wrong. These were pagan sanctuaries for idolatrous worship. Look at verse 7. 
God warns that all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay to waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. God's people were told to worship God, the God of Israel, alone. There shall be no other gods before me. They were told to worship God alone in God's temple. Not only had they gone somewhere else to worship, they were worshiping someone else in the somewhere where they resided. So, before I go for any further, right, we need, to, we need to pull up right here and think for just a minute about the judgment of God. Because after all, there's that nasty dichotomy that we hear about, isn't there? That the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, full of wrath and lightning bolts and smoke and fire. And then the God of the New Testament went on a vacation and got happier. So, first of all, the fact that the dichotomy exists at all, that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, and that the God of the New Testament is a God of love, is confusing, unhelpful, and if I can even just go ahead and up the ante, it's unbiblical. God's character doesn't change. When you think, though, that the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath, and the only reason now he isn't the God of wrath is because Jesus came on the scene, what that leads you to believe is that God is still really angry and that Jesus is the one holding back all of the anger. That's not biblical. Okay? Here's how I see that. First of all, um, I don't want you to miss the scale of how angry the idolatry of God's people makes God. See, I'm not getting into the discussion by saying God's really not as mad as you think he is. Because he is. Look at it. Verse 4, the mountains will melt like wax. Verse 6, Samaria will be a heap for planting vineyards. So, if God is that mad, how in the world can we say that he's the God of love or grace or isn't still that mad at you and I? Well, to talk about that, we need to talk about how we read the text. Because we tend to read our own emotional experiences into the text, don't we? We tend to read our own emotional experiences into the text. How then do we reconcile the judgment of God with the justification of God? How do we recognize the fury that God has against his own people? Which, by the way, just so we're clear about all this, again, I want to be full disclosure on this. 
Whenever the Bible talks about the judgment of God in the Old Testament, it's not like the, the world is being judged. It's God's people that are being judged, right? So in case you think that I'm going to say, well, the judgment of God was really against all those non-believers, no. The judgment of God is lined up with the bullseye squarely pointed at the people of God. So there's that. Now, you have heard me say potentially before, but if not, you'll hear me say it for the first time. Anger is what we call a secondary emotion, okay? Anger is a secondary emotion. In other words, something had to happen in order for anger to show up, right? Something had to be there first. That's where the difficulty comes in. Anger is triggered by something. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, um, Becky Pippard is helpful here. She says this. She says, all loving persons are sometimes filled with anger, not just despite their love, but because of their love, okay? But the difficulty is when we read this text, we read ourselves into the text. In other words, you and I read here and imagine the scene through our own unrighteous anger, our own irritability, our own wrath, our own fury, our own pettiness, our own jealousness, and so on. And it's not a pretty picture, is it? You've been inside that carnival that is your mind. You know what's really going on in there. Some of you have experienced this harshly in your own life. You have experienced anger flowing out of selfishness directed at you. Some of you have also experienced anger flowing out of selfishness from you, haven't you? You know how that goes. When your anger is fueled by your own need to self-protect or self-justify or self-preserve and you lash out at the people that you love. That's not a pretty picture of anger, is it? And so when you view God's anger like you were angry, God was inconvenienced by our sin, so he got mad. God was having a good day, then sinners messed it up, and he got mad. See, when you start reading yourself into the text, God is all of a sudden not a very pleasant God to be around at all. And maybe he's not worthy of all that worship. He's just angry. Becky continues and hope has its reasons and she says this. Think of how we feel 
when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships? Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? She says, far from it. We are dead against whatever is destroying the one that we love. Some of you have walked alongside of family members that have battled some form of addiction. You don't go to a child or a spouse that's addicted to something that's destroying them and say, well, I really want to make, give you the chance to make your decisions for you. I think it's really unwise. No, you're not going to do that. You're going to go through any length possible. I had heard a story one time of a friend whose wife um, had had surgery and the doctor had prescribed a responsible dose of uh, pain medicine to manage the surgery. And for whatever reason, the medicine uh, and her brain Uh, did not make nice-nice together. She became immediately and violently addicted. Completely changed her personality. He tells me the story of the time that he had bought a safe in order to keep the meds in the safe while she was still recovering and that she was climbing on his back, clawing at him, trying to get into the safe to get the meds. Love will go to great lengths when something is ravaging the beloved, even to the point that it says, I don't care what it takes to keep my beloved safe. That's, that's what we see here. You see, anger, anger is not the opposite of love, right? Anger flows out of love. Hatred or indifference is the opposite of love. Anger is not. Anger is invested. Indifference shrugs. When I'm counseling, especially uh, married couples, and I ask them what they want to see changed in their marriage, if I see one of the spouses shrug, when I see things are really bad, and I see the spouse go, yeah, I go, "Uh uh-oh. Love is giving way to indifference, and that's a bad sign. So here, God is anything but indifferent towards his people. God is anything but indifferent towards his people. So what's the type of idolatry that his people are engaged in? Um, I think this is one of the most uh, helpful things that I have read because it really puts us all under the microscope. Here's the quote that I saw. One theologian puts it this way. He said, the greatest danger because it's such a subtle temptation which enables us 
to continue as church members and feel that nothing is wrong is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with the idols in our hearts. It's not that we say, um, when we think of idolatry, we think of this, this, we're bowing down to a carved image instead of God. The problem's not the instead of, the problem is in addition to. And your carved image and my carved image may look different, but here's the deal, they're both there. They're both vying for the attention, the affections, and the adulation of our hearts. And this is what was happening here. God's people, God's possession, were in effect asking God to be cool with divided affections. And see, this is the thing, right? We've talked a lot. You've heard me talk a lot. Steve's talked a lot. Jimmy talked a lot. We've talked a lot about the technical definition of idolatry. But I want you to see the part of this text that was anything but technical. It was relational. I want you to see the relational dimension to idolatry as well. The relational dimension of idolatry is that it is spiritual adultery. As God said through Micah in verse 7, it's prostitution. There are some who commit adultery that are looking to permanently leave their marriage, but there are others who are trying to have all the things they want with no consequences. Effectively, this is what we are saying to God. We're saying, God, we want to enjoy all the benefits of knowing you and being loved by you, and we do love you too, but we also want to be free to worship other things too because they make us happy. Do you see? Do you see why God is? Do you see why God is so angry? Do you see why God is so wrathful? He sees what's happening. His beloved is being hurt, and he's not going to share his beloved with anyone or anything else. We are his people. We are his possession. We are his treasure. We are his delight. We can't be rescued if our idols aren't removed. Uh, well, I'll read the whole subtitle. In his new book, Seculosity, Dave Zoll says this. Uh, well, I'll read the whole subtitle because it's a fascinating, it's a great subtitle. Seculosity, how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. That's the whole title. Here's what he says in the book. He says, listen carefully, and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. 
we believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. What God's people were doing, what you and I do, is we ask God to coexist with whatever else for the moment makes us feel like will be enough. The problem is none of those other things can make us feel enough, just like opioids can't take away your pain. They can dull them for the moment, but all they do is show back up demanding more and more and more of you until there's nothing but a shell left. And God loves you too much to see his beloved ravaged by something that will destroy you. In order to redeem you, in order to rescue you, he has to remove your idol. But that brings the question then, why are we so attached to the darn things in the first place? Second point. Let me, let me first show you how the judgment of God was going to unfold, Right? The judgment of God oftentimes in the Old Testament was for the, the people of God, the nation of Israel, to have the enemies be able to overtake them. So whether it be the Babylonians, whether it be the Assyrians, um, God would not give the armies of Judah, the armies of, uh, of, of Israel favor. He would allow the other armies to topple them. And so the fact that there's an army that there's a king marching towards Jerusalem is a sign of God's judgment coming. And this is the thing, beloved. Everything around us is competing for our attention and our affection. There's nothing in this world that's neutral, not a single thing. It's either moving you towards God or away from God. It's never just benign and neutral. And so the things that we allow to co-reign, cohabitate with love for God ultimately become more comforting and secure to us than God himself. So I want you to look at the text this morning. There's a whole list of towns, and God's judgment is worked out by allowing his hand of protection to come off of his people and allowing an army to lay siege to them. So why is this list here? This list is the path of the Assyrian army, which would ultimately end up overtaking Israel. These are all the places that the Assyrian king would come in order to take control over these regions. And I want you to look, because these particular places have put their hopes in very particular things. And Micah is trying to lay that out. And he's trying to show them that even though these cities have their hopes based on particular location, these hopes will not come to fruition. So Beth Lafra means house of dust, verse 10. Micah says to them, guess what? You're going to ultimately roll yourselves in the dust. Do you see that? House of dust, you're going to roll yourself in it. He refers to Shafir in verse 11. The meaning of that word is beauty town. And yet Micah tells them that they are going to live in nakedness and shame. Za'anan, 
means going forth town. But Micah says, don't come out. Beth Ezel means a house of taking away, and yet they shall be taken away, or they shall, they shall uh, take away from you its standing place. Micah uses deliberate puns to describe the ironic nature of the eventual destruction that these towns will experience. The very thing that each place worships will be the source of its destruction and the place where its judgment is most clearly seen. And then most poignantly, we see in verse 15 this, I will bring a conqueror to you. The conqueror is the king of Assyria, and the word marasha means dispossess. Adullam was the cave where David went to flee from the attack of Saul. What Micah is saying here is that the Israelites are going to want to flee, but there is going to be nowhere they can escape to. This is the indictment. This is what he says they should do in response. Verse 16, make yourself a people in mourning. When he says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair, it's a reference to shame. So what's the connection to our day? What's the connection to us? I think in part, um, both personally and collectively, there are ways that we become deeply and inextricably attached to our own idols. It's a way of feeding our desire to have identity and security, whether it is body image or wealth or career or love or attention or affection or whatever those things may be. It's a way in the moment that you can feel like you are having your need for security and desire being met and filled. But not only is there idolatry at an individual level, but there's also idolatry, as this text says, at a corporate level too. Think about it. There can be a certain narrative that surrounds a city or a culture. I mean, when you think about the, the story of America, it's a story of freedom, is it not? Um, religious freedom or freedom from the crown's taxes or freedom for life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But isn't it possible that there's also a certain deeply seated idolatry that's even fed at a corporate level that states that our deepest happiness is only found in our freedom? When you leave me alone, you leave my money alone and my taxes alone and my property alone and my right to bear arms alone and my right to make decisions alone. When you leave me alone, then I'm most happy. Except God doesn't want to leave us alone. Therein lies the problem. It even seems that woven into the fabric of our own country is almost an idolatry that can run counter to the God of the Bible. We often find that in trying to find our own sense of security, what we're really doing is trying to control our story, to write the end of the story. We're trying to write our, write our own stories. And the tragedy is that even in writing my own story, okay, so look, this is the tragedy. When I have great dreams, like when I can fly, I can't fly. When I can run and run away, win a race, I'm the slowest one. This is not fair. I should be able to do whatever I want in my dreams, and I can't. The same thing happens to us. Even in trying to control our storylines and write our own destiny, we're still not enough.
the idol is still controlling our lives, then our sense of failure, of falling short of our own standards that we've set for ourselves, leads us to feel guilt and shame, which leads to anxiety. So how do we deal with our shame and anxiety? We try to either escape our circumstances or try to control them. In either scenario, guess what? The idol is still the one that's controlling us. Because either way, we try and run from it or master it. So where, guys, where is rescue coming from here in Micah? Admittedly, rescue's hard to see and find at first. In fact, in his book, it's about 70% judgment and about 30% restoration. That doesn't mean it's not there, but it means we have to look for it. So third thing, where does the rescue come from? I want you to look with me. Um, at how this, uh, this thing unfolds, because it really does unfold like a court case. Um, Bruce Waltke, who was a professor of mine in seminary, said this about the book of Micah. He said, God is the tribunal judge, and he's calling his people to defend themselves. This is a call to a legal trial. Um, you first see a summons in verse 2, right? There's the subpoena. Verse 2 says this, Hear, O you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that's in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. You've just been served with a subpoena. Secondly, there's a punitive epiphany. This means a kind of unfolding judgment that's still yet to come. In verse 4, Micah gives a preview of what judgment will look like in the case of a guilty verdict. Then in verse 5, an accusation is leveled. And then in verse 6, there's a sentence. And it sounds really ominous. So where's the rescue? Well, there is someone that's trying to intercede on their behalf. And it's Micah. His name means who is like God. And Micah comes to intercede. As he thinks about the people, about the accusations and the sentence, he is broken. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Micah can't save them. But he's willing to get down in the depths of their shame that the people should be experiencing. He can only lament. He can only join with them in being naked and rejected and ashamed. It's looking at this first chapter. And this prophet, where his name asks the question, who is like God? Who is like Yahweh? And we see that the answer is no one. No one is like God. No one is like Yahweh. But the story of Micah finds itself in the much greater and grander story of the Bible, doesn't it? And this is where Jesus enters the courtroom and answers the question, who is like Yahweh? By saying, no one is like him. I am not like God. I am God. Jesus essentially comes 
to earth to say, I'm the Lord who will become naked so that you will be clothed with my righteousness. I'm the Lord who will be rejected so that you will be fully accepted and embraced. I'm the Lord who will become unclean and contaminated by your idolatry so that you might be rescued from its judgment and its attraction. I am your advocate. It's Jesus, the advocate rescuer, that is the only one who will be able to help us dismantle our idols by first being dismantled for us, absorbing judgment due to us, being the satisfaction for us and in us that we are so desperately longing and chasing after. Micah could only share in our nakedness and shame. Jesus became our nakedness and our shame and took it from us and gave us his robes in a grand exchange meted out at the cross. God didn't send Jesus in order to love us as if before he hated us or was indifferent to us. God sent Jesus because he loved us. If you believe that God is a God of wrath, who's only being held back by the ascended Jesus, you have the wrong picture of God, because that's not the picture of God that you have in the scriptures. Now, my friends, listen. If you don't understand that it was because God loved you that he was willing to send Jesus to be dismembered for you, to be destroyed for you, to be crucified for you, to be dead and buried for you, so that Jesus would be raised, that Jesus would extend to you his robe of righteousness as he exchanged it for yours and my sin. If you don't understand that that's been the heart of God from the beginning of time, then you don't know the God of the Bible. So why then is God seeming to let calamity come to his people? Well, it's for this. God wants to destroy that which is destroying his beloved. I promise you, your body image doesn't love you like that. Your checking account doesn't love you like that. Your job doesn't love you like that. Do you know what you are at your job? You're replaceable. Your transcript and your GPA doesn't love you like that. Your kids don't love you like that. Your parents don't love you like that. Your neighbors don't love you like that. There's only one type of love. There's only one source of love that loves you like that. And that's Jesus. And he's going to do whatever it takes to rip away from you the thing that's killing you so that you can find your life, your love, and your satisfaction in him. 